the Jewish views on the survey that reveals what members of the Muslim community in Britain really think about Jews. Celebrating all things Sephardi, as a festival comes to JW3, we talk to the man behind Sephardi Voices, and remembering possibly the greatest boxing referee the community ever knew. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news stories from the past week, I'm Jason Rosam. New data emerged this week that highlights how members of the British Muslim community perceive Jews. The polling company ICM questioned 1,081 adults between April and May last year for a Channel 4 programme called What British Muslims Really Think, which aired on Wednesday the 13th of April. Amongst the statistics revealed, 40% of those polled felt that Jews had too much power over international financial markets. 44% said Jews have too much power over business, and 39% thought Jews have too much power over the media. We'll be finding out more about this later on in the programme. Members of the Labour Party who were found guilty of anti-Semitism could be permanently excluded from the party under new changes proposed this week. Labour has come up against ongoing criticism from the community in recent months following a space of anti-Semitic incidents. But Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has said his party is resolute in tackling the problem. Meanwhile, former Foreign Secretary and Labour MP David Miliband has condemned what he called repulsive outbreaks of modern anti-Semitism and called for cross-party loyalties to help fight against it. He was addressing the Board of Deputies' President's dinner. David Guest, the former husband of Liza Minnelli and reality TV star, was found dead at a five-star hotel in London. Emergency teams were called to the Four Seasons Hotel in Canary Wharf on Tuesday the 12th of April at around 10.20 in the morning, where the 62-year-old's body was found. His death is being treated as unexplained. British playwright Sir Arnold Wesker has died. He was 83. The London-born writer penned scores of plays, several books and a collection of poems. His career spanned a total of five decades, during which time he achieved global recognition with works including Chicken Soup with Barley, Roots and I'm Talking About Jerusalem. And finally, the chief rabbi Athiram Mervis and his wife spent a night at Windsor Castle as guests of Her Majesty the Queen. The couple were part of a small number of high-profile visitors, including Tate Museum's director Sir Nicholas Sarota and author Simon Seabag Montefiore. One of the royal kitchens had to be koshered ahead of the visit. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport. Thanks, Jason. Scrabble were crowned Division 2 champions on Sunday morning as they beat Faithfold C 3-1 to claim the title with a game to spare. Believing his side were worthy winners, manager Ray Abrahams has now set his sights on winning promotion to their Premier Division next season. There's more silverware up for grabs this weekend, when North London Raiders A, looking to complete the first part of the Leaking Cup double, take on Oakwood A in the final of the Civil Angsting Cup. Kickoff at Wingate and Finchley on Sunday is at 2.30pm. And finally... Israel took on North Korea on the ice hockey rink on Sunday when the two met in a World Championship Division 2 match in Mexico City. Despite the two countries not having diplomatic relations, Sport and Israel won on the day, the Israelis enjoying an 8-4 win. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk.
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look at this week's edition of The Jewish News. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Shall we start off with the front page as ever, Rich? Absolutely. Best place to start. Keeping in mind the saying, lies, damn lies and opinion polls, especially after last year's election, I know the, the pollsters took a bit of a hammering. Well, another poll came out this week that's really setting the nation's agenda. It was from ICM and it was about Muslim attitudes in Britain. There was a TV programme on Channel 4 on Wednesday night. It was called What British Muslims Really Think. And it wasn't simply about Muslim-Jewish relations, but obviously that was the main thrust of what we were interested in. And it really threw into sharp focus the challenges faced by interfaith organisations to make sure that Muslims and Jews in the UK can have cordial relations, especially during times of conflict in the Middle East. It wasn't simply, as I said, about uh, anti-Semitism. It also tackled issues of homophobia, polygamy, general issues in terms of living in a secular Britain. Um, But yes, there was some really worrying issues. And one of the things that we've really run big on on the front page is an interview we did with Fayez Mughal, the head of Faith Matters, who chart uh, anti-Islam, Islamophobia issues in the UK. And he warned his own community, you cannot complain about Islamophobia if you're still going to tacitly endorse anti-Semitism. And that was one of the issues that, as I said, really was thrown into sharp focus on this programme. And it is absolutely shocking what the programme has revealed. Some of the comments, some of the facts that have come out are really enough to shake 21st century society to the absolute core with values that are so antiquated that, frankly, it makes the arc look modern. But this is going to feature quite a lot in this programme. We're going to hear in just a moment's time anyway from Gideon Falter from the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. And also you'd have heard this just mentioned just now with Jason in the news. One thing that strikes me, and again, I'll be putting this to Gideon, is that I don't think that there's anything that can necessarily be done about it, because if it's so inherent, if it is so embedded deep within the roots of a culture and a belief system, how on earth is anyone going to get rid of it? And it feels like an impossible task. Um, Mehdi Hassan, the Muslim journalist, very accomplished writer, three or four years ago now, wrote an article about, called it Our Secret Shame, anti-Semitism. Our young people in the Muslim community are being brought up to believe dangerous nonsense. And I still feel that that is the case. But not only is that the case, and great people like Fayaz and Mehdi and Majid Nawaz, and there's some really brave, brilliant people in the Muslim community fighting this. But not only have you got that in the grassroots and the teenagers and the young people learning this nonsense, you now have something that's more amongst the, should we call it, the the elite, the intellectual classes of the Muslim community, the university graduates, which is anti-Israel. So you've kind of got these two levels now, I think, of an old-fashioned sort of uh, roots of anti-Semitism that are obviously stupid and illogical and dangerous. But you've also got a more intellectual base, I suppose, which kind of shows itself as anti-Zionism. So those two levels, I think, really kind of hit Jewish people in the UK in stereo at the moment. And that will be the issue that we have to tackle as a community in the years to come. Well, worrying times, but luckily, normally, the first step to tackling a problem is acknowledging it. And I think that that Channel 4 programme has more than acknowledged it. But speaking of worrying times... Anti-Semitism has definitely been associated in recent weeks with the Labour Party and 
Jeremy Corbyn making all the right noises at last. Jack, is he not? Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has said uh, over and over again that he wants to tackle anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. But plenty of people have been saying, you speak the, the right speak, you don't do anything, you're not, you're not acting. So this week, members from the Jewish Labour movement wanted to take much more affirmative action on this. And they basically wanted to ensure that anti-Semites in the Labour Party would be permanently excluded. Before this, they say that there have been no clear provisions to root out anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, that people have been allowed to re-enter the party even after being suspended. And I think this also taps into the previous issue we talked about regarding Muslim anti-Semitism, because only this week a Luton councillor had to resign after they were found tweeting that Hitler was the greatest man to ever live. Which strikes me as absolutely extraordinary, considering that Hitler also made it very clear, even if he didn't necessarily do that much about it, that he hated anyone who wasn't white supreme. So Muslim would fall into that category. Definitely. But I think the worrying thing is that extremists like this are allowed to masquerade in the Labour Party as being quite moderate and quite electable. You know, they they can hold a position where they have responsibilities for everyone. And the Labour Party need to have a mechanism in place where they can root out people that portray themselves as moderate, even if they hold extremist views like this. And it just feels so strange that we've been speaking about this for what feels like an eternity, frankly. I wouldn't be surprised if it's almost cropped up virtually every single episode since the Jewish views began back in December. Yeah. This, but yet nothing seems to be being done about it. This week in particular, I, I, I looked across the desk at my news editor, Justin, and I said, I, I think we've probably got the word anti-Semitism in the paper at least 50 times this week. Uh, the more we think about it and the more I think about anti-Semitism, particularly this whole chapter with the Labour Party, the word anti-Semitism in terms of semantics is a soft sounding word, isn't it? I mean, I think Jeremy Corbyn looks at anti-Semitism and he doesn't see it for what it is. It's a poison. It's, a, it's, it's racism. It's Jew hate. It's anti-Jewish racism. I think we have to come up with a new language whereby anti-Semitism isn't seen as like a, a second level offence, which I think many, many members of the Labour Party, and it does feel from the top down seem to think it is it is absolutely extraordinary especially in this day and age as we were saying before that it just doesn't seem to be acceptable for any other minority almost to some degree it's as you say second rate for jews it's the most peculiar thing and i think perhaps most worryingly with anti-semitism is the tendency to dismiss it as not an actual thing when the number of times I've seen on social media people say, well, I can't be anti-Semitic because Jews aren't Semitic. You know, they try to delegitimize the claim that somebody is anti-Semitic by any means, thereby making it not a serious problem. Goodness. Well, yes, it does feel like we do continually talk about this and unfortunately not a lot gets done about it. But I guess we'll see how it unfolds as the weeks progress. Let's move on to something a little more positive now. Pesach is obviously around the corner and the BBC are acknowledging it. You know what we're going to talk about again, sort of, and it's anti-Semitism. I'm sorry, but (laughs) it's couched couched in quite a nice story. Our journalist Jacqueline Gordon this week has uh, written a story about the BBC's annual Pesach programme, which this year is going to be aired on the 25th during the festival. It's called Never Again, Fear and Faith in Paris. And... The programme looks at two exodus 
Exoduses, Exodi, what's the plural of Exodus? Um, one would assume that it is actually just Exodus, but I don't know. <laughs> okay, two Exoduses. Uh, <laughs> one. <laughs> we'll work on that. If you do know the answer, by the way, it's studio at jewishviews.co.uk. Our, our Thank readers you. are very intelligent. I'm sure someone will email me. Um, As indeed are our listeners. Looking at two, um, one biblical and ancient, the uh, Exodus of the Israelis from ancient Egypt and the time of the pharaohs. And one in the last year or so, and the exodus of French Jews in the wake of the kosher supermarket attacks and Charlie Hebdo. The figure we were given was that 8,000 French Jews have moved to the UK since the beginning of last year. Now, I find that number absolutely staggering. It'd be more likely to be a total figure, which also includes Jews coming to the UK. I know that synagogues, including St. John's Wood, now have French services. And Lee Scott, the former Conservative MP, who appeared during the London Assembly hustings in Redbridge this week, told us that he's going to Paris next week to speak to French Jews about moving to Redbridge. So Redbridge could is be. Is he going to find anyone there? <laughs> well, uh, Redbridge is very nice. The whole of you know Ilford is a, is a very pleasant area. But yeah, Redbridge could be little Paris in in years to come. Paris has the Louvre. Redbridge has a, a civic centre, I believe. So there's a little work to be done, I think, in that nook of Greater London. But yet, yeah, could be an influx of French Jews in that area before too long. Well, to some, the parallels are uncanny. What can I say? Vive la Redbridge. Thank you very much indeed to both of you. That's all we've got time for, for the look at the paper this week. So thanks to Richard Ferrer and Jack Mendel. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-edition online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've been hearing, new data emerged this week that highlights how members of the British Muslim community perceive Jews. The results have caused concern amongst both communities, and it's raised the question, what can and should be done about it, if anything? To try and answer this, I've been speaking to Gideon Falter, the chairman for Campaign Against Antisemitism. I started by asking him to tell us exactly what the stats this week have revealed. For a long time, people have been talking about anti-Semitism within the British Muslim community. And anecdotally, there's been a lot of evidence of that. But what we haven't seen is this kind of really thorough, I would say groundbreaking research into exactly what attitudes are held by many British Muslims about Jews and also about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. And this is a piece of research which has been commissioned by Channel 4 for a programme being fronted by Trevor Phillips, who obviously has very strong credentials in this area. It has been praised. It was The research was conducted by ICM, but it's been praised by one of their main competitors, YouGov. It has been praised by an organisation which fights Islamophobia. So what we have here is something which is a very strong, very credible look into Muslim anti-Semitism. And the results are truly shocking, even for those who expected them, that we see a level of anti-Semitism within the general population, which is troublesome enough, problematic enough, concerning enough. And then you see that it is practically double within the Muslim population. So can you just break it down exactly what those percentages are that we're talking about? It varies. We did a, a survey shortly before this one was done which said that 45% of British people believe one uh, anti-Semitic stereotype. I think it was 26% believe two, 17 believe three, 11 believe four. So it depends how many anti-Semitic stereotypes people have to believe before you count them as anti-Semitic. So based on what we know, does this mean that we have as a community something, do you think, to be worried about? Or is this perhaps something that we've known all along, we just maybe haven't realised the extent of it? 
I think it's something that we've been concerned about for a very long time. And I think it's something that many people have been fighting against, us included. But I think now for those who were erring and they weren't sure whether this was really a problem or whether it was just a sort of paranoia, I think the figures are now there for them in black and white. So I guess it begs the question then, what are we going to do about it, if anything? Can we do anything about it? It's very, very hard to deal with. The Jewish community, I would say, for at least the last couple of decades has been out in front when it comes to building bridges, doing interfaith work, doing outreach work. Unfortunately, the problem has been growing far faster than any outreach work has been able to deal with the problem. And if you consider the outreach work as the soft end of the fight, if you like, and a very necessary part of the fight, I think what has been lacking is the enforcement. And particularly in situations where there are large Muslim communities, perhaps gathered around a particular mosque where you've got a Wahhabi influence, for example, it's going to be very difficult to get in there and enforce as a Jewish community. It's not something we can do. It's something that the state must do. They must reach into these sort of dens of extremism, which breed anti-Semitism, and root it out. And we need far, far firmer enforcement. If I can read you briefly a quote that the, from a speech that the Prime Minister gave last summer, he said, When you look in detail at those convicted of terrorist offences, it's clear that many of them were first influenced by what many call non-violent extremists. It may begin with hearing about the so-called Jewish conspiracy and then develop into hostility to the West and fundamental liberal values before finally becoming a cultish attachment to death. Put another way, the extremist worldview is the gateway and violence is the ultimate destination. And what he's effectively saying there is that anti-Semitism isn't just like other forms of bigotry. It's not quite the same. What he's saying is that anti-Semitism is not just a racism. It's also an ideology, an ideology which has its own immune system, if you like. If you accuse somebody of being anti-Semitic, quite often they'll come back at you saying, ah, but I wasn't being anti-Semitic. You're just using that as a way of stifling criticism of Israel. And with this ideology, it attracts people in. It gets people believing that there is a Jewish conspiracy, that there is some kind of curtain behind which there are lots of Jews operating the world. And what it does is it feeds them into extremism. And so what I think is that, and what we think, is that fighting anti-Semitism is not just part of the fight against hate crime, it's also part of the fight against extremism, and it's a very major part of the fight against extremism. And so I think that if there's to be a solution to this, insofar as you can ever have a solution to this kind of problem, it has to be very, very firm enforcement and much stronger investigation by the state of these hives of extremism that have developed. The problem is that one could argue that the UK probably is amongst the best in Europe at trying to combat not just anti-Semitism, but racism and bigotry full stop. Does this mean then that the world has got almost no hope? Because if we're amongst the best and we can't tackle it, then what can be done about it? It's it's almost as if there's a no-win situation facing us. It's a very tough one because you're absolutely right. Britain is one of the leaders in Europe when it comes to fighting extremism and fighting anti-Semitism. And we're very fortunate to have a government who, which definitely has the political will to fight extremism and anti-Semitism. We have laws which are very firm on anti-Semitism and extremism. The areas where this seems to sometimes fall down is when you get anti-Semitism that's disguised as anti-Zionism or anti-Israel. 
And when you get into that sort of area, a lot of people are going unpunished because they say that, for example, the Israelis are going out and kidnapping children and in harvesting their organs. Well, that's no different to the anti-Semitic blood libels from medieval times. When you have people who are going out and saying all sorts of extremely anti-Semitic stuff, but swapping the word Zionist and Jew, they are often getting away with it. And so what we need is for the those responsible for enforcing the law, the police officers and the prosecutors and the courts, to start to understand that there is a nexus between this virulent anti-Israel activity and anti-Semitism and start to fight it. I think that we should add as a final point in the interest of fairness, if nothing else, that I don't believe that neither any of us at the Jewish Views nor you guys at Campaign Against Antisemitism would want to paint a grim picture of our Muslim brothers. I'm sure that there is interfaith work that goes on between Campaign Against Antisemitism and obviously the Muslim equivalent. Would that be right? It's, I mean, it's, it, it is a pretty dark picture looking at these statistics. You look at them and you think, what hope can there be? That's not really the Jewish way of looking at a problem. The Jewish way is always to try to find a way through and to succeed. I think that the Muslim community has a lot of work to do on fighting anti-Semitism within itself. We're aware, for example, of Fiaz Mughal from Tel Mama, who recently, the last couple of days, put out a statement on these statistics decrying anti-Semitism within the Muslim community. And we're aware of some fantastic work that has been done on outreach. But what these statistics make so starkly clear is that it's not winning at the moment, it's not succeeding. And there needs to be another element to it. And I think the other element needs to be enforcement, far, far tougher enforcement. Gideon Falter from Campaign Against Antisemitism talking to me there about the worrying data that's emerged this week, highlighting how members of the British Muslim community perceive Jews. I should like to point out at this stage that we have invited the Muslim Council of Great Britain to talk to us for this week's programme, but unfortunately at the time of recording we were unable to arrange something within time. So hopefully someone from MCB will be joining us on next week's programme here on The Jewish Views. And of course they know that they are most welcome. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam are joined by the founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and retired head teacher David Collins. They'll be discussing the differences between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Plus, Diana Toman will be finding out about possibly the greatest boxing referee our community has ever known, the late Sid Nathan, when she talks to his granddaughter. Now, a festival celebrating all things Sephardi is to take place at JW3 starting from next month. It will explore all elements of Sephardic life, from foods to traditions, history to modern-day communities, to help you get a little taster of one of the events there. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Alec Nakamuli from Safadi Voices, and she started by asking him what exactly is it that his organisation does. Safadi Voices is what we call an oral history project. So what we do, we record testimonies of specifically Jews from the Middle East and North Africa who were forced to leave their country and who have resettled and rebuilt their lives in the United Kingdom. 
And how did you find the people that you wanted to appear on the film? Most of our trustees, etc., are from those countries. So we have people who work with us who are from Iraq, from Libya. I myself was born in Egypt. So we have our network. There are associations of, for instance, Jews from Egypt, the Iraqi community or ex-Iraqi community is very well knit. So it's really through contacts or we sometimes speak at events and people contact us and say, hey, I would like to be interviewed. And just so for, for our listeners, Sephardic voices, Sephardis, are those coming from North Africa, from far away as India? We go as far as Iran. Iran. So we have Iran, Middle East, North Africa. So strictly speaking, we include Sephardim and we include also Mizrahim. Right. And I've been talking about Sephardi voices, but yeah. obviously our listeners don't know this is a short film that you have made. Well, that is just one, one part of, the... of it. It's an introduction to what we do. What we really do is we record these oral testimonies, which are then deposited as the British Library. So, so far, we have recorded over 75 interviews. And we have also made 10 short films, which are abstracts of the interviews. Right. And why now? Why now? Because there's been a... First of all, there's a question. We, we believe that this history has got to be told. The history of Jews from the Middle East is not very well known even in the United Kingdom. For instance, when I say I come from Egypt, I sometimes get puzzled looks saying, I thought you were left with Moses. And for instance, in Egypt, there were 80,000 Jews at the end of World War II. Now there are 15 Jews left. 15, not 15,000. 15, no, 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 15, five. three oh times five. Goodness. Iraq, for instance, in Baghdad, 30% of the population of Baghdad was Jewish at the beginning of the 20th century. There are now five Jews left in Iraq. There are countries where you had thriving Jewish communities like Sudan, like Libya, where there are no Jews left. So these communities are totally extinct. Age is creeping up on all of us. So... I am. I left Egypt in 1956. I was 13. There are still people of the generation of my parents or, let's say, elder siblings who are around. But, you know, life creeps up on all of us. And we feel that we got to do this before the what I call the first hand witnesses are no longer with us. What specific threads of culture do you, do you feel that you bring to the Jewish community? I mean, the, clearly there are many that the Ashkenazis bring. Yeah. What's Sephardi bring? Well, if you look at, for instance, the role of the Sephardi Mizrahim in those countries, we've produced great rabbis. We've produced the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, we had uh, thriving yeshivot and uh, learning centers. Maimonides went through Egypt, etc., etc. There is also a diversity of cultures and personal recollections. So during the interviews, for instance, we ask people to cast back to their memories in their country of birth. What was their family life? What religious traditions, etc. Then we ask them to talk about the circumstances of their departure and how they felt when they left. And then how did they arrive in this country? How did they rebuild their lives? their parents' experiences, etc. It's wonderful. When you've finished this project, what do you hope to have? Well, what we hope to have is there are four repository of probably 300 interviews from all walks of life. People who lived in cities, people who lived in the country, people like in Morocco who lived in the mountains even. All social stratas, which can then be used for academic research. 
And was there, when you were talking to people, did there seem to be a common thread, presumably persecution, but but other than direct persecution, what was the common thread? The common thread was a very strong attachment to family culture, to religious culture. Obviously, traditions varied from uh, country to country. And then, of course, uh, the experiences of resettling in the, the UK. Some were more fortunate than others in the circumstances in which they arrived. Some literally arrived as refugees and had to be looked after by the community and the social services. Some have managed reasonably rapidly to rebuild their life or had some wealth here, etc. And it seems to be that the Sephardi communities here, we always think of as terribly exotic. I mean, they do still feel very exotic, almost almost different, but it, there's some lovely traditions. Yeah, there are some lovely traditions which are maintained. Tell us a few of them. Which are, which are maintained today. For instance, I look back in Egypt, Great importance was attached to the Pityon Aben, the purchasing of the first male born. This is post the circumcision of a newborn. No, before the, yes, post the circumcision. Also, for instance, when it came to bar mitzvahs, laying tefillin was more important. The most important ceremony was the Thursday before the the Saturday of your bar mitzvah, where you put tefillin on it the first time. That was considered actually more important than the actual being called up on the Shabbat. That's very interesting because it feels it's beginning to become quite a has has a place in the Ashkenazi ceremony, the yeah. bar mitzvah ceremony, and I didn't realise that had come from. Well, it didn't come there, but, but that was the, the emphasis. Let's yes. put it that way. Yes, that's lovely. And tell me about yourself. How did you get involved in in bringing everybody together? What inspired you to start? Well, the inspiration actually came from an American professor, Professor Henry Green at the University of Miami, who was thinking of this project, and we met him. And we launched it in the UK. So we're a registered charity. We get donations from uh, foundations, from individuals, etc. And we conduct uh, these interviews, which, as I said, are then deposited to the British Library. The British Library are interested because they are building an archive of various strands of immigration into the UK. So from Asia, from Africa, etc. And we are one of, you know, the Jews from the Middle East and North Africa are one of those strands. And will it be possible to not only hear the testimonies, but just to see alongside the places, what they look like? There's some photographic evidence. Yes. In fact, what we do is we first record the interview, which is not really an interview. It's a guided conversation where we take people through and we ask them to recollect as much as possible. And it's very interesting because I had one person I interviewed who said to me, I've told you things I've never even told my children and grandchildren. So I think the fact that wow. you're talking to a neutral or even somebody strange brings a lot out of you. And then we ask them to, if they have available any documents like photos, their original birth certificates, their paper, which the letters which you know, force them into exile. Some of them bring up the, the boat or the plane ticket with which they actually left yeah. those countries, etc., that's wonderful. So then the next generation will be able to see these things. Hearing is one thing, seeing... Yeah, I mean, they'll be able to hear and see the, comes quite the live interactive. recording. Yeah. Because at the British Library, those interviews are available to everybody. Unless, for instance, sometimes it happens specifically, some of the interviewees put some conditions on. They say, I do not want this to be available in the public domain, or I do not want this to be listened to whilst I'm still alive. But, you know, generally speaking, these are totally open and you can go to the British Library and see them and listen to them. And how many more are you going to be interviewing? Or can the project ever actually finish? I think, unfortunately, the project live will finish with 
the natural life of the first generation of people who left. I mean, there is perhaps a second phase will be to interview the children of these people who were born here. But at the moment, because of the time pressure, let's say, we are focusing on the first generation people who actually themselves physically left. And people who would like to learn more, to, to find out, to even to see, how should they go about it? Well, they can, first of all, contact us and particularly, you know, people who come from those countries who would like to be interviewed, please get in touch with us, sephardivoices.org.uk. And then they can contact us if they want, you know, any information and they can go to the British Library where they can have access to those interviews which have been deposited there so far. Alec Nakamuli from Safadi Voices talking to Kate Fulton there. For more information, you can go, as Alec has just alluded to, to Safadi Voices, all one word, dot org, dot uk. And Safadi Voices will be part of JW3's Safadi Festival, which starts at the beginning of May. And for more information on that, you can always go to jw3.org.uk. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, if you're a fan of boxing, then you've probably watched at least one fight where Sid Nathan was refereeing. A champion boxer himself, Sid sadly passed away just over a week ago at the youthful age of 93. To find out more about his incredible life and career, Diana Toman has been speaking to his granddaughter, Georgina Morell. Diana started by asking Georgina to tell us how her grandfather got into boxing in the first place. He was a very young man. He started his uh, professional boxing career at the tender age of 16 um, and he followed in his father's footsteps, who was also a professional boxer. Was he? He was. And he fought 16 professional fights, of which he won 14. And he met my grandmother and she refused to marry him unless he gave up his boxing career. (laughs) I see. And he did. He did that for the love of my grandmother. Right. And then some years later... He questioned. He was always into the boxing. That was his his life. Because a lot of a lot of young Jewish boys, in fact, went in for boxing in order to get pull themselves out of poverty. In where did he live? Grandfather hmm. grew up in Allgate in, in East, London, in East on, London on Lehman Street, or right. was it Buckle Street? I think he was born. I think on Buckle Street and grew up in Lehman Street. So he was following a tradition of young boys who took up boxing really know, yes way. and his his father the same you say his you father was also right. a, a boxer yes a professional boxer professional boxer yeah um right. i think at first when my grandfather was offered by a, a boxing promoter i think it, uh, this boxing promoter had seen my grandfather train or or box i'm not obviously not professionally at the time he approached my my great grandfather or and or grandparents and offered him a contract a five-year professional contract um, and at first my grandfather's father said absolutely not right however i'm not sure how it went about but in the end my grandfather got his wish and uh, he had a very very short career as a professional boxer however winning those 14 professional fights but in the end it was actually his career as a, a star license holder referee tell me a bit about that well after his professional boxing career he continued enjoying watching the boxing and I think there was one particular fight that he went to see and he questioned the referee at the time 
of his decision. And the referee said, well, if you think you're so good, why don't you become a referee? <laughs> so, you know, uh, one not to give up a challenge, went to the boxing council at the time. He did his theory and his practical tests and then he gained his referee licence. And over the period of, I think, I'm not sure how many years it was, but he eventually gained his star licence holder um, licence. And in the end, when he retired at 65, he'd refereed over 1,500 fights and then went on to judge and commentate boxing. He he refereed many world title fights as well. The likes With very well-known people. Very well-known. Nigel Benn, Frank Bruno, Muhammad Ali. That's just to name... A few. few, yes, yes. And did your grandmother always accompany him when he was, for instance, in the USA? No, no. My grandma was a a homemaker and she looked after my mother and my uncle, Uncle Raymond. I think she felt safer knowing that he wasn't actually boxing. But yeah, boxing was my grandfather's life. I adored him. I adored everything that he did. Boxing for me is... Just it's like my fa- you know now my grandfather's gone. It means so much more to me because it meant so much to him. Yes, you know. Yes. Um, do you watch fights yourself? I do watch fights. Do yes. You? And just the other night, it was a week to the day that my grandfather had passed. So I, I watched the Anthony Joshua fight in honor of my grandfather and shed some tears that evening. Did you? And yeah. Knew that he'd probably be watching it somewhere up there. Do you have siblings who are equally interested in boxing? I have two siblings. I've got two brothers, Adrian and Daniel. I wouldn't say they're into their boxing, but I think because it's something that we grew up with, always knowing that our grandfather was flying all over the world, you know, to Vegas, to the USA, to Puerto Rico, we, we have an interest you know, or they have an interest. I think perhaps I do more so because I go to a... I did work in actually a boxing gym. Did you? I did. My grandfather um, went to visit not so long ago when he participated in the making of the video for Jewish Care's 25th anniversary. Because, of course, he was very connected to Jewish Care, wasn't he? He was. He attended Jewish Care in Stonegrove, Edgware, three days a week. And that was something that was really important to him. And it, it kept him going after my grandmother died. Now... Eight years ago, he was completely lost without her. He was married. They were married for 66 years. They married at the age of 19. And they met at a dance, actually, when they were 16. And he said to her, Lily, one day I'm going to marry you. And he did. The lovely Georgina Morell talking to Diana Toman there about her grandfather, the late Sid Nathan, and his extraordinary career in the world of boxing. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and retired head teacher David Collins. And the subject today is based on what we heard Kate talking about earlier – a festival celebrating all things Sephardi is to take place at JW3 in the coming weeks. So we thought we'd discuss the difference between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. David, let's start with you. What have you noticed to be the biggest differences between the two tribes? I assume that we're talking mainly about Pesach at this stage. And <laughs> well, this is just one of them. But uh, but the main difference that I know is that I'm not allowed to eat rice during this. And I, because I'm Sephardi, am. 
Lucky you. I don't think yes. I'm missing too much because there's so much of this lovely tweet over Pesach. But, of course, there are other differences. There's one difference that I noticed when I was once in the Wembley Safari Shul uh, where when it came to Birchat Kohanim, the blessing of the priest, although we don't do it fully in this country, we do it in Israel, all the families came together under the, under the grandfather's talit and the grandfather blessed the son and the grandchildren, which I thought was a very lovely ceremony. Yes, it is. It's very oriental, actually. It's very nice. And another thing that I noticed that I really enjoyed was when I was at a chuppah at uh, Beavis Marks, at the end of the wedding, the couple went up to the uh, Ark, to the Aron, with a candle leading them there. It's just a lovely way to end the wedding. You don't do that in, in, in an Ashkenazi wedding? No, you don't do that in an Ashkenazi wedding. Because at my wedding, we did that in Beavis Marks. No. Yeah. Well, Beavis Marks, yes, but uh, in an ordinary Ashkenazi wedding, no. I mean, some weddings, the, the couple will be accompanied by candles, more the Haredi, very, very orthodox weddings. Yes. They were accompanied by the candles coming in, but, but not going up to the Ark, as far as I'm aware. But there are actually <laughs> much much more serious differences yes. than that. Judy, do you know of any differences that you know when, of between the two? When I was, oh, about 15, I went to a club here in Golders Green and it was all Sephardis except two people, myself and a friend. We were both blue-eyed blondes and all the others were with the Sephardis and it, it just felt very different. The the songs, the dances, it was it was just lovely and they were so welcoming to us. And I started going out with one of the boys from there and I remember talking to my mother because he was from India and he was dark, dark skinned, and I said to Mum, How would you feel if I ended up marrying a Sephardi? And she said you could marry someone black, as dark as you want, if he's Sephardi, we'd welcome him with open arms. But we don't want you marrying out. And I always thought that was so strange. There was a time, actually, which I can remember, when if you were Sephardi and you married an Ashkenazi, that was like marrying out. It really mm. was. I think that happens quite a bit in Israel, unfortunately. Does it still? I think so. There is a some prejudice towards the Sephardim mm. in Israel. They haven't risen to the same levels as the Ashkenazim. But that, it is changing slowly. That's but, quite funny, David, because the Sephardim historically were almost like the gentry of the Jews. In this country? In this country yes. they were. They were like the noble Jews, weren't they? Well, that, that's kind of how they saw themselves as the more educated well, and more... Well, the Sephardim were the, first, were the first Jews to come to this country. After the at the time of the Oliver Cromwell was the first person to allow Jews back yeah. into this yes. country. Yeah. Yes. But uh, after the Inquisition, many, many, many Sephardi Jews came to this country, and they became the aristocracy. Yes, because there were so many conversos, weren't there? That's right. Yes, yes conversos, people who had pretended to be Christians in mm. Spain, yes. so they could yes. survive. Yes, so they could yes. survive. It was the one way that they knew they would be able to, but. Uh, no, well, there's always been prejudice either side. But, but in actual fact, actually, my way forward is quite interesting because although I was born Sephardi, my paternal grandfather was an Ashkenazi rabbi and he was made to retire. It was many years ago, it was before I was born, and he was given a farewell present by the Ashkenazi community. It was out in Africa and... They gave him, as a reward, as a goodbye present, 
99 pounds, and in those days, nine shillings and sixpence. And my father lost his temper with them and said, couldn't you have made it 100 pounds? And he was so furious, he walked out and joined the Sephardi community, who in that part of Africa, it was called Southern Rhodesia then, it's now Zimbabwe, all the Sephardi came from Rose Island. They were all Rose Islanders, and they were all related to each other, which was quite extraordinary. So I've been brought up as Sephardi, but in fact, it's with Ashkenazi roots. So Clive, can you follow an Ashkenazi service in Shul? Because they are different. That's one of the differences I've noticed. The difference is, is very different, but I can, yes, I can. Uh, I find it very tough to follow a Sephardi service. But having said that, I always find that within the Sephardi service, every word is said but it's still that different that I do find it difficult. And now I put my hand up and say that I'm half Sephardi. Oh, my, you are? I am half Sephardi, but I've always been brought up as an Ashkenazi, so I've only ever known really Ashkenazi traditions. What I think is so nice about the Sephardim is that they are much more tolerant, it seems to me, than the Ashkenazim. I think within the, the community, you, you hear of reform within the Ashkenazim, but you don't hear of reform or liberal within Sephardi. They're all one group, which backs up what you're saying about the tolerance. But actually, it's interesting you said reform and liberal because uh, there's a famous story about the, the great Haham, whom I knew very well, this is the Sephardi chief rabbi, Dr. Mm-hmm. Gaon. Yeah. 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 He, at one time, when the liberal synagogue many years ago in St. John's Wood were building the synagogue, they had nowhere to go. And he offered the Montefiore Hall next door to Lauderdale Road Synagogue, he offered them that to use as their services. And the chief rabbi at the time, who was Brody, I think, was furious with him and told him he had no right to invite these people who called themselves Jews to give services in the Montefiore Hall. I would say present-day Ashkenazim on the right of the community would not allow it, it either. It's still the same in a different way. For example, I mean, there's, there have been articles about it in, in the papers this week about the fact that women have got more lead roles at the S&P now. It's no longer called the Spanish and Portuguese, and I call it the Sephardi synagogue. It's all been changed. So but can, can I just ask you then, aren't there reform Sephardi Jews, liberal? No, there aren't, because... Uh, just, well, there probably are, say, because Barclay Street, Upper Barclay Street, the big reform synagogue, mm-hmm. was started by Sephardim. But in fact, the Sephardim recognised the reform services and recognised them as Jews. The Ashkenazim don't. That said, though, I do think it's quite remarkable how well they get on. I mean, we're talking about their differences, but when you look at other religions, look at Sunni and Shiite, there is absolutely, from what I can tell, very little crossover or, or harmony. Whereas you look at Ashkenazim and Sephardim, we get on. There was there's, a, there's no real severe issue between the two. There are little sort of typical Jewish kind of disagreements, but I don't, there's no war between them. No, yeah. there, no, that's true, but there used to be. When I was young, there was a much bigger... Well, it wasn't a war, but there was a wall between them. Well, if, I've got more in common with Sephardim, who's about my religious observance, than somebody who is also Ashkenazi, who is ultra-religious. I've got nothing in common with them. So you would eat, as David can't, you would eat rice at the coming Pesach? Well, I, I won't, but if I wanted to, no one's stopping me. But I won't because it's how I was brought up. See, that's all it is, in my yeah. opinion. It's how you were brought up, where your roots came from. I mean, my roots, I mean, 
I've said on this show before, my father's a convertee, so he's from Irish Catholic. But on my mother's side, her father was Sephardi, Dias, and her mother or her roots were Ashkenazi. So we're a bit of a mix. Well, this is the same sort of thing with myself. But you talk about what we can eat and can't eat. But my daughter has married uh, a Sephardi. And now, because she's married to him, she follows his customs and can eat whatever he eats. So these rules are not cast in stone like a lot of others. I know that for a fact, because I've got various friends who are married to Sephardis, that they then eat the rice because the husband or the wife can but you very rarely get the one who's the Sephardi saying well I won't eat rice because I'm married to an Ashkenazi well yes it works both ways (laughs) yes it does but but it's very interesting there are many many differences if you think through them there are lots of differences I mean we've mentioned some of them but the whole way the service is carried out is, is well, one. the Sifre the, Torah the that is used in Safari service is quite different. It's contained, there's a sort of container which is opened it's up. Cylindrical it container. It's cylindrical, it? absolutely. Yeah. And they read from it there. Uh, I certainly wouldn't like to have Hugba with that because I know it's very heavy <laughs> and they have to sort of lift it up. And that's another thing. They do Hugba before they, they've actually laid. So you have got these differences, but there's more in common that keeps the Safari Manashkanazim together than splits. Oh, them, yes. As you could as you said quite, quite rightly there before. And what I find amazing is that you, you have different melodies in, in the service, you have different prayers, but there's very little difference in the language, the pronunciation, considering how far apart the, you get the t and the s differences and the vowels are oi and e, and it's slightly different, but it's remarkable how but, close they are to But surely still. nowadays you Ashkenazim use Sephardi Hebrew, don't you? But you well, the Sephardi pronunciation yeah. is certainly used in Israel in speaking Ivrit. Yeah. And it, but in the services, not so much so. I mean, some people will, but not everyone. I found a lot of Sephardi pronunciation in Ashkenazi shawls. I really have. Oh, I, it has I moved very over rarely to it, hear Ashkenazi yeah. pronunciation now. When I first heard, I grew up in a reform shawl, but it was Ashkenazi as much as it was. When I first heard somebody saying the blessing after before reading the Torah, Noi Sain Hai Sori Ryan, I didn't know what they were talking about. It was that different. But that is the Ashkenazi pronunciation, but so few use it. But that is one of the differences, and the stuff becoming a tough. Yeah. This is this is Ivrit, and it's interesting actually that in Israel the the pronunciation has followed the Sephardi way, yes. and so Ivrit it's not Ivris. It's Ivrit. Yes. It's, well, it's, the, it's the modern way of... of it is the modern like. way, yes, absolutely. Yes. One of the most interesting things, I think, between the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim is if you go into Beavis Mark Synagogue or Lauderdale Road Synagogue on Shabbat, mm-hmm. or Shabbos, as you might say. Yes. No, I uh, say Shabbat, believe you me. Say Shabbat. We used to say well, if Shabbos. You go, if you go there on Shabbat, you find that there's tremendous decorum in the Sephardi synagogues. If you go into an Ashkenazi synagogue, there's much less decorum. Hold on. No, I've got to call you up on that one, Clive. I used to go, I used to belong to an Orthodox shul, and there the men all sat together and the women did. And the women, well, my friends anyway, we chatted nonstop or near enough nonstop. Now I'm a member of a Reform synagogue. And when I go there, I'm sitting next to my husband. And believe me, there's not nearly as much chat when the no, women are next to that's their the husbands. Point of the I wasn't talking about the Reform because the Reform synagogue has got the same disciplines yeah. as the Sephardim. But the Sephardim, it's 
separate. It's men downstairs and women upstairs, but you never hear gossip and chatter during the service. There's tremendous decorum, which you don't, I think, in nationalised silica. I'm not criticising. It's just a fact. I think the Sephardi traditions have become more anglicised, though, as you're saying, Shabbat. And I'll tell you a little story that happened to me and to Phil Dave, our producer. We, we were working on, on this show and we stopped and went over to a, a local kosher supermarket. Outside this supermarket, there's people all often asking for sadaka, sadaka. Sadaka, you mean? Sadaka, sorry, Clive. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we bought something to eat as we were walking out. Bikels or bagels? Bagels for me. <laughs> but as we walked out, there was the guy there, and I heard, I saw a couple of Frum guys walk out, and he said, Gushabas, Gushabas, Sadaka, Gushabas, Gushabas, Sadaka, Gushabas. Phil and I walked out, not in our religious garb. Shabbat Shalom. Sadaka. <laughs> it was just, it's as if <laughs> he like, knows his class. Well, but I, quite. I, I doubt if he's asking for money on Shabbat, but that's another story. No, it was a Thursday night. It's close enough to okay. ask for money. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny how it's the Sephardi pronunciation is almost like the more acceptable, more anglicised version. And I'm not sure why. Indeed. Anyway, that's sadly where we have to leave this discussion. But thank you both very much indeed. It's been very, very interesting. And my thanks to both of you, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and retired head teacher David Collins. Now, just before our rabbinic thought for the week, a couple of weeks back, Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips gave us a delicious recipe for Purim. Well, this time, she's got the perfect culinary delight for Pesach. We all need a really tasty recipe that's different and delicious for Pesach. This is a Spanish almond and pistachio nut cake, guaranteed to be enjoyed by the whole family. It takes only 20 minutes to make and an hour to cook. Or you can make little cupcakes with the same mixture and they take just 20 minutes to cook instead. So in terms of the ingredients, we need 200 grams of ground almonds, 100 grams desiccated coconut, three large eggs, 120 grams of caster sugar, two teaspoons of vanilla extract, two large carrots peeled and grated, 100 grams pistachio nuts, roughly chopped, two teaspoons cinnamon, 150 grams of unsalted butter, or you can use margarine to make it parov, and a handful of raisins. So preheat your oven to about 160 centigrade or 140 Fahrenheit for fan and line a loose base cake tin 24 centimetres wide. Cover it in baking paper is always a good tip. And then mix together the eggs, sugar and vanilla so it's a nice, thick consistency. Add the ground almonds, coconut, cinnamon and stir before adding into the butter and giving the ingredients a thorough mix. Add your grated carrots, pistachio nuts and raisins and mix again. Then put it into the cake tin and bake for about an hour Allow it to cool overnight before cutting. It just comes out much easier. It's easier to cut a cake when it's cool. And then if you wish, just decorate with sifted icing sugar and a few sliced pistachio nuts before serving. Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips with a delicious Pesach recipe there. And if you would like more information on that dish and others of Denise's, then do go to jewishcookery.com. 
Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. Shabbat Hagadol is traditionally the Shabbat where the rabbi gives the longest sermon. Two hours would be a mere nothing, going over the complex and detailed laws of Pesach, how to kasher every utensil and clean every cupboard. Pesach, to my mind, is lost without the detail and can be lost also with too much of the detail. I grew up in a family that took Pesach seriously and have remained that way. Cleaning the house was a shared endeavour. The worst punishment I once had was to be told that I'd been too naughty and I was not allowed to participate. That changed my attitude at once. I enjoy the cushering of cutlery. I find it important to see the process of cleaning the inside of the house as a process also of cleaning the inside of the soul. And I feel blessed to be able to do that in the context of sharing. To do it alone is really hard. The detail matters. But so does the wider context. It's the festival of freedom, Zman Cherutenu, the time of our liberty, the beginning of the journey that should ultimately lead to redemption. The story of the Exodus is on the one hand complex, on the other hand it's as simple as can be. We were slaves in Egypt and through the experience of injustice learnt the importance of justice and human dignity throughout the world. So a Seder which is only the detail but doesn't talk about slavery in today's world, the enslavement of women in many parts of the world, the trafficking and the trading in young people's lives, the slavery to ideologies. A Seder that does not touch on these great themes, to my mind, has also missed the point. And the art is to love the detail and let the detail lead to the widest possible picture. The fact that our homes are kosher, that our homes are clean, is also an opening, a scraping away of any kind of callous on the soul, to be alert and aware and attentive to what our society is today, to what the gates are to freedom, that we not only should want to pray are opened, but that we in our lives can help to open for those who suffer in today's world. That's Zaman Cherutenu the time when we really celebrate our collective liberty. And that's what the week of preparation for Pesach is for, to get us ready to be able to ponder, think, share and eventually act to make our world more just and more free. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Gideon Falter, Alec Nakamuli, Georgina Morell, Denise Phillips. Also, we must thank our Schmooze team, Judy Carberts and David Collins. And of course, you at home for listening. And I guess we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.